Welcome back to the Dealmakers Podcast Show with serial entrepreneur Alejandro Cremades, best-selling author of The Art of Startup Fundraising and co-founder at Panthera Advisors. In this podcast, we ask our guests about their successful acquisitions and financing rounds. All right. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Dealmaker Show. So today we have a very exciting founder that is joining us, uh, and we're going to be talking about all the good stuff that we like to hear. We are going to be talking about building, scaling, financing, the founding story of this business. Also, what has what was the market reaction? I mean, there was people even laughing, you know, at, at events telling them that their idea was not going to work. Uh, also, no one wanted to invest in, at the beginning in Europe and how they needed to come here to the U.S. What was that transition like, as well as coming up with the definition and defining and shaping up their own culture? So a lot of good stuff uh, ahead of us, you know, very inspiring conversation. So let's welcome our guest today. Tao, Tao, welcome to the show. Alejandro, thank you so much for having me. So originally born in Beijing, but you grew up all over the place. So give us a walk through memory lane. How was life growing up? Yeah, absolutely. So already a world traveler since, since a baby. So I was born in Beijing, China, then moved to Germany when I was six, spent most of my time in a mix of Berlin and Munich. Um, also spent a high school year in the US, which is actually where I met my future co-founder, Johannes. Then, yeah, studied in the Netherlands and in and, and Switzerland, so I studied physics and economics, and we started the business as a college project. So um, it's, my, it's my first job. So then, so then let's talk about that uh, world traveler too, because I think that the, the opportunity of having been raised, you know, in Germany, Berlin, there in Germany, obviously Berlin and Munich, but, but that, that worldview, you know, also, you know, from, from having immigrant parents too, and, and, and seeing them, you know, like really like build like a, like being very proactive at trying to build a better future for, for the family. What, what kind of perspective do you think that gave you? It's a great question. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's hard to compare because I don't know what a different life would have been. Um, that said, if I, if I look at my life and maybe some, some similar narratives and similar life stories, I do think you get imbued with a very high uncertainty tolerance. And so that's something you need as a founder, as an entrepreneur, because I think it's less so much about taking like crazy risks and being the daredevil, but it's much more about in, in business, especially in the early days, when you don't have product market fit, when you don't have funding raise, when you don't know if you can hire good people, if you don't know if you know, customers want what you're building uh, and doing it anyway. So dealing with that uncertainty is, I think, something that immigrants or people who get transplanted into other places are very familiar with, and that, that I think has helped uh, me and um, my co-founders as well. So also you came to to the U.S., you know, and you did uh, a year of high school here. I'm sure that coming here to the U.S., seeing the American dream and innovation around you and, and being okay, you know, to to take big bets, being bold, uh, rather than, than Europe, no, which is a little bit more, it was at least more conservative. Things are changing now, but more conservative on the way of thinking where people will point at you if you would fail rather than, clapping up and, and, and saying, come on, get back on that horse and, and, and keep going, you know, like they would do in the U.S. How, how would you say that that also, you know, shaped uh, who you are today? Because I'm, I, I believe that that experience was very, very fruitful when it came to, to building your network as well. Oh, absolutely. So, so both Johannes and me, so my, my co-founder and CEO, um, with whom I've been doing this business for now 15 years, so, so we met on that high school year. 
And, and that year was tough. So if you grew up in Germany, public school, you know, everybody goes to public school in Germany. And in the US, we, we got a scholarship to this um, pretty, pretty, pretty fancy school where the academic standard was extremely high and, and the athletic standards were super high. And it was rough, right? So, you know, first time as kids, you know, out of home uh, in a new environment. Uh, this was Virginia, which is very different also culturally from where we were in Germany. And I think the learning we took with us is, um, you know, no, nobody died. Uh, you know, we actually became better in that process. And so I think that, you know, gave us the idea when we approach new projects is, you know, basically like how hard can it be, right? So, um, you know, we've, we've done all these different things from an early life on starting a business, you know, how hard can it be? Let's just, uh, let's give, give it a try. So I think it's just lowering the bar for adventures um, is, is definitely something that I, I took with me from the early age. So eventually you ended up going back there to, to Germany. Uh, and you decided to study, to do a combination there of physics in Switzerland and then also economics in the Netherlands. You know, obviously, you have to keep going, keep exploring the world. You know, it's just in, in your nature, you know, based on, on what I'm hearing. But but that's quite a very interesting blend. Why, why those two? Why did you want to combine those two? Well, so, so the combination is easy because I didn't finish physics. <laughs> so that's that's always a good reason. No, look, I mean, I think the reason I was drawn to both subjects is they are very, um, very first principles based. So physics, obviously, very first principles. And economics, I've always been attracted to because it's about uh, decision-making theories. It's about what binds the social construct, but you can apply mathematics to it. So I think those two, and I was always drawn to philosophy as well, but um that was one thing where my parents were a little bit skeptical whether I should do that. So I think I always like first principle uh, subjects. So eventually when you did your economics degree, that's a when, you know, the idea of uh, really coming up with get your guide came about. So walk us through that incubation, ideation, incubation, and, and then, you know, all the way to launch. What were those sequence of events? Yeah, so so the um, so our journey began with a travel mix-up. So Johannes and I, we were traveling to China for a student conference, and this is when I was still in in, in Zurich um, studying physics. And um, so we're doing going to a student conference in in Beijing, and Johannes booked his flights wrong and landed a day too early. But he was um, as he is, you know, he brought a huge appetite to explore. Uh, he was hungry to learn and to experience things. Um, but without a guide, which which was then me a day later, he was he was quite lost. So it was very hard to actually experience the city. And so when a day later I arrived, I really opened up the city to him, um, transformed the trip, connected him to the locals, to the local cuisines, to the culture and everything. And so that really sparked in us uh, a very foundational belief that the um, that the future of travel should be very much guided, that you have someone that can help you really go deep and explore a city. And so that's, that was really that faithful trip. And when we came back to, um, back to Europe, we thought, hey, you know, there's, there's something there. And, you know, how can we build something that can connect people and travelers to those destinations? They were just as I helped Johannes connect to that destinations. And, and so that when we came up with our first idea of building a peer-to-peer marketplace is how you would call it nowadays. So where, you know, you can book, uh, local tour guides in different places, or you could be a tour guide yourself. So that was the initial idea, um, but that we later then pivoted into much more of a professional marketplace, where the idea of being um, of of having guided travel and connecting travelers to the local destination still held, 
except that we connected you to um, professional providers uh, for travel experiences. So you ended up uh, taking this, you know, uh, it was time to launch. Uh, you guys even went to, to an event and it sounds like the reaction was uh, f like fueled with skepticism. You know, you even had the CEO of uh, companies like bookings.com or, or, or other people saying that it was a terrible idea. Uh, why? So in, in hindsight, um, you, can, you can always say why they were wrong. But, but back then, and this is, remember, this is 2000, maybe 10, I think 2010, 11. So we just launched our first version of the new um, professional marketplace where we connected uh, professional travel experience providers and, and creators such as, you know, river rafting providers or some bus tours or attractions with travelers. So when we launched that very first product, um, the reaction was, this market is super fragmented. Um, it's actually too fragmented. Um, and this is a market that will always stay offline. So that was the reaction. Obviously, a statement like some markets being offline, some markets being online is a very, sounds very uh, early 2000s as a statement. Uh, but, but that was the prevailing notion back then. And so people thought this is too fragmented. It's too difficult to aggregate. Um, and this is a part of the market that will always stay offline. And I think this was the big one. People always thought that travel experiences will always be an add-on product. So it's always an add-on to hotels, an add-on to flights. And we, we obviously held a very different, different belief. We, we always thought that the reason you travel is for the experiences. Uh, the reason you travel is not to sit you know, in, in a low-cost airline and, and sleeping in a three-star hotel and getting this amazing uh, breakfast, um, but it's really for, for, the, for the travel experiences. So for the people that are listening, you know, to really get it, what ended up being the business model of Get Your Guide? How are you guys making money? So the, the way we work, and, and I think there's a, there's a fun story there of how we transformed and, and actually did the pivot from this peer-to-peer -peer marketplace to the professional marketplace. So when we did this peer-to-peer -peer marketplace, which uh, uh, when we launched it, we had, I think, three bookings in one year, and, and two of them were from our parents. So it didn't, just didn't work. And um, however, what happened is we, we suddenly had a, um, a professional vendor, a professional experience creator that did um, river rafting in Switzerland, just signed up and then asked us where they could wire the money for the listing fee. And so, you know, obviously we were all, we were the, the five founders of us. We were um, economists, uh, two molecular biologists and two electrical engineers. So we didn't really know travel industry. And we then did some research and realized, okay, there's actually this huge market uh, professional experience creators around the world and and that we should really tackle this market instead of the call it amateur you know I give you a walking tour in the afternoon market so there's a huge market for professional experience creators around the world and so that's how we then pivoted into that model and we've had this model uh, for the last 14 years and the business model is that for every successful booking we take a share of the revenue that we help facilitate for those experience creators so also in, in, in this case, you know, what was the, um, how did you guys go about fundraising? I mean, I guess before we even go about that, how much capital have you guys raised to date? So we've raised a couple hundred millions uh, to date um, over the last, yeah, I would say four, 15 years. And uh, yeah, fundraising, I mean, this was, um, it was tough. So, you know, I take, I take you back again to 2009, 2010, Switzerland, you know, this was not, Silicon Valley today, or this was not, you know, uh, maybe Berlin in, in the 2020s. So in 2009, 
um, B2C startup uh, really wasn't a thing in, in Europe, at least, at least not in Zurich and certainly not to the degree that it is today. And, and so we really struggled um, to, to raise money. So fortunately, we actually raised some money from a, a local uh, business angel who built his own travel business. And we raised some money, um, finally, from um, the local Zurich Cantonal Bank because they had a small uh, venture seed arm to um, help local businesses and promote local startups. So that's how we raised our first, you know, 100,000, 200,000 uh, Swiss francs. And, and then we got going from there. And then later on, when we really had to scale the business, because the thing with travel is, unless you go for global scale, it's, um, it's, it, it doesn't really work. So, so in, in a way, from day one, we knew we had to go global. And, and so that's when we tried to raise money first in Europe. And I think every single venture capitalist, so every single VC in Europe said no, um, didn't believe that we could build a global champion um, out of Berlin. And that's when we had to go overseas and, and raise from Americans. I mean, it's a pretty amazing what you guys have done on the capital raising side. I mean, I even see that last year you guys announced the last round, actually, uh, which was say close to 200 million at a 2 billion dollar valuation, which is uh, remarkable. I guess uh, in this case, you know, for you, what have you seen, like, for example, like the 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 European market evolving a little bit when it comes to seeing more like looking at startup investments? Certainly. So I think, think I think what's what's changed um, is you now have a crop of a cohort of European companies that are not limiting themselves to being successful in Europe or, or being successful in their home country. Because, um, you know, Alejandro, you know this, but, uh, but Europe is obviously is, is a mix of many, many countries. And, and sometimes you have businesses that are just strong in one country. There are some businesses that may be pan-European. But now you have a cohort of companies that is trying to take the world and um, starting with the Western Hemisphere and, and trying to uh, be market leader not only in Europe, but also, also in the U.S. So I think that level of ambition um, and vision is definitely something that has emerged in the last 10 years. And you, you, have, a, you have a host of European companies, um, Spotify and, and others, um, that have done that. And you know, we're very much um, on that journey as well. So I think that's, that's one thing that's definitely changed. Hey, guys. So pardon the interruption here. So I got to tell you that you know, for those of you that are either looking to raise money or you're looking to get your company acquired, you don't have to be alone. You know, there's a lot of psychology that needs to be blended with strategy, with methodology, with process. And it's very hard. And already doing your business alone is super, super difficult. So I remember, you know, back then when I was an entrepreneur, I kept really experiencing the challenge of either knowing or finding the right type of access to the right type of investors or really understanding what was the right type of guidance, you know, that would carry me through the process, whether it was with seeking money or with going through the acquisition. So that gap that I found being an entrepreneur is ultimately what pushed me later on when I met my co-founder at Pantera, Mike Sieversen, to really put together an advisory firm where we are guiding entrepreneurs and founding teams through the capital raising efforts, whether you are at a seed stage or at a series A stage, or if you are going through the process of an acquisition and you are in small to mid cap type of um, a cycle. So 
Again, you know, we would help you from guiding you and, and supporting you from A to C all the way to the end as an extension of your team. And there's no reason for you to do this alone. So with that being said, if you would like to find out more, feel free to send me an email at alejandro at panteraadvisors.com. And we would love to take a look at helping you out. I mean, there's a lot of people now uh, listening that uh, maybe they're in Europe and they also they're thinking about raising money from U.S. investors. What would you say are the main differences, you know, that you have encountered from, let's say, the U.S. type of profile of an investor compared to the European profile of an investor? I think a couple of years ago, th there might have been a difference. Nowadays, capital has become so globalized that it's it's even hard to tell apart the European VCs from the American VCs. So um, a lot of American VCs have now European outposts or or offices, and they they hire European folks. Um, likewise, you have European VCs that hire American um, investment professionals. So I think at this point, um, it's it's become very meshed, um, and that it's actually hard to tell the difference anymore. Um, and I will say there's been also growing up by the European VCs in that I think European VCs now are daring to think much, much bigger as well. So I still remember in 2011, 12, when we were pitching um, some of the European or frankly, German VCs, you know, people were asking us for three-year cash flow projections when we were still trying to find product market fit. So I think that, that narrative and that expectation setting has also changed um, for the better in European VCs. So at this point, I think, you know, taking... Taking money from European VC is, is, is as good as taking from American VC. So also for the people that are listening to really get an understanding here on the scope and size of Get Your Guide. Anything that you can share that you feel comfortable, maybe number of employees or anything else? Yeah, so we have about eight, eight 900 employees. Um, we're you know, in, in 17 offices around the world. Um, we have, um, to this point, uh, had more than 120 million bookings over the lifetime of the business. And, and very, very much the market leader um, in the space that we define as uh, travel experiences. So when you have all these employees, um, culture is everything, right? And, and, and I know that for you guys, you know, it was a, a journey to really define it and to shape it up. So why was that the case? So when we were just five founders of us in Zurich, and we then back then made the decision that um, we, we needed an outpost or a second location where we could scale uh, with operational sales and marketing folks. And we knew that Zurich wasn't going to be the place because it was just too expensive. And so we picked Berlin. And so, so I went to Berlin and we started to hire people. And then around that time, we read this book um, called Delivering Happiness by Tony Shea, uh, the late Tony Shea, um, about culture. And, and we thought, hey, that's a good idea. We should, we should do something about culture. And, you know, obviously one thing that you do as an early founder is you uh, rashly try to learn and, and, you know, copy and imitate. And so what we did, we just did a Google search, um, found a couple of cultures that we liked, you know, I don't know, Amazon and a couple other companies and, and took some of the best principles of, of core values, meshed it up, created a best of, printed it out, put it on the wall and said, these are now our 10 core values. So we did that. And it was, of course, of a total failure. Um, people said, you know, we didn't live those values or they weren't authentic and it was just a mess. And that's when we learned that, you know, culture is not, this is one of those areas where you, you shouldn't copy and cannot imitate because the culture is, is fundamentally, you know, who you are 
in your best version, so to speak, right? So, you know, not everybody will love, live up to all values, myself included, every day. But in the best version of ourselves, we, we do. And, and that's when we did an exercise that was quite fun, where we got together as a uh, leadership team. And, um, and one of the coaches who facilitated that session, and I highly recommend that method, is he said, okay, now all of you, like we're five or six of us, said, you know, um, all of you, now imagine the three or four best people in your company. If, if you could clone these three or four people, who are they? And just write down their names. Okay, so we did. And there was a huge overlap between the names we wrote. So we basically all wrote the same three, four people um, that we would, we would have loved to clone in the company. And then they said, okay, now write down the traits and characteristics and from that infer some of the core values of your business. And, and so that was a really, really good process. So taking some examples where we totally agreed on and from that infer what are some of the core behaviors and therefore core values of the business. Obviously, we, we did a couple of iterations from there, but that's when we then wrote down those values and then it really worked because people could see that we actually have real role models in the business who live those values um, and that those will be values that can make you successful in the business, make you successful to grow your career in the company, um, and also, you know, just just really work as an operating system. So when you say uh, you have 800, 900 employees, and now you also have this culture and these values that you guys are living by, how do you make sure that culture doesn't break? Because, I mean, you guys have grown very quickly. You have tons of employees. So how do you make sure that you have that level of consistency and alignment throughout the organization? Yeah, so the uh, you know we're big fans of, of process um, to help build the culture. It sounds counterintuitive, but I think ultimately that's the way to go. the The obvious starting point is during hiring. So we have a very rigorous multi stage hiring process where um, culture is tested for. Right. So we have uh, interview questions, we have interview stages that are entirely geared uh, around culture. So that's one. Um, the other one is we make um, culture and, and behaviors of our culture part of performance reviews, right? It's, it's not the entire performance review and, and results is a big part, um, but leadership and collaboration and, and culture are big parts of the performance review. And I think last but not least, it's about role modeling. So, you know, if, if there are people who really, you know, live the culture and are role models for the culture, you know, we, we show that to the company and, and we tell people, you know, these are cultural role models. Uh, and we reward them publicly. So I think there are different ways you can institute, um, institute processes that reinforce that culture. And I think last but not least is also, you know, sometimes um, if people don't fit the culture, that you also part ways with them, even if they are from a results pr perspective, very strong performers. Um, and, and look, I think there is no right or wrong culture, right? So if someone doesn't fit your culture, I think there is no judgment, right? I mean, just take the extreme example. You have investment banks probably have a very different culture than uh, NGOs, than tech companies, than us. And one tech company may have a very different culture than another one. So I don't think there's a right or wrong culture, but um, if you have a culture, then you need to know what it is and that some people fit or, or maybe don't fit uh, in your culture. So we're talking about people. We're talking about investors earlier. So I want to ask you a question in this regard. Imagine you were to go to sleep tonight. And you wake up in a world where the vision of Get Your Guide is fully realized. What does that world look like? Well, first of all, I think I think it's uh, I, I think it's I think it's a it's going to be a very uh, desirable world to live in. Um, 
so at the core of our mission is is to help unlock unforgettable travel experience and and guide everybody to moments of wonder um, where they can bring their passions to life. So maybe I start from the traveler side. Um, there's a saying that you know lots of people say travel is my passion, but I think what they're really trying to say is that they travel for their passions, right? So you know to, to our point earlier, nobody's passion is to sit in a non-reclining seat for seven hours, right? That's not the passion. The, the passion is when you land, uh, when you wake up in the morning, leave your hotel room and explore that place, right? I think, I think, and then whether you're a coffee aficionado like myself, and I was recently in Vietnam, I did like this, you know, uh, coffee, coffee with egg uh, workshop, or whether you're a historic buff, history buff or a nature lover, and you do some exploration. So I think being able to help everybody connect with their passions when they travel um, and not have them, you know, lose out and just stay in their hotel room and not being able, like Johannes back then, um, just being adrift or or being lost. So really connecting travelers with the places of of their travel and really maximize their their trips. I think that's our vision for for the traveler side. And I think equally important on the creator side. So for our experience creator, that we can become that main catalyst for the experience economy where every entrepreneur with an idea uh, to bring a certain experience to life can do that uh, on, on Get Your Guide. And that's, that's really what we think is about guided travel, that we you know, guide travel through these passions, innovation, uh, and human connections, and really unlock that experience economy. So I'm going to put you now into a time machine, Tao. And uh, I'm going to bring you back in time. I'm going to bring you back in time to 2009. And, uh, you know, it's that moment where you are you know, still brainstorming about, you know, what's possible, a world where you can bring a solution to a problem that you're encountering. And let's say, you know, you're able to have a sit down with that younger self that is starting to think about what would perhaps launching a business look like. Let's say you're able to have a sit down with that younger self, maybe in one of those beer gardens there in Germany. And, uh, and you're able to give that younger Tao one piece of advice before launching a business. What would that be and why now being almost 15 years in with Get Your Guide? One piece of advice. So there's many pieces, but if there's one piece um, I would give is to be an infinite learner. Um, and because ultimately infinite learning is something that just enables everything. Uh, and especially as an entrepreneur, the only superpower you have versus incumbents is that you learn faster, grow faster, change faster. Um, and that means you have to learn, learn faster. Uh, and that's really the starting point. So to be an infinite learner would be my main advice. So for the people that are listening, Tao, I would love to reach out and say hi. What is the best way for them to do so? Uh, LinkedIn. Well, easy enough. Well, Tao, thank you so much for being on the Dealmaker Show today. It has been an honor to have you with us. Thank you so much for having me. If you like the show, make sure that you hit that subscribe button. If you could leave a review as well, that would be fantastic. And if you got any value, either from this episode or from the show itself, share it with a friend. Perhaps they also appreciate it. So also remember that if you need any help, whether it is with your fundraising efforts or with selling your business, you can reach me at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. 
You've reached the end of another episode of the Dealmakers podcast. For free resources and materials, head over to alejandrocremades.com. Thank you for listening and see you at the next episode.